So let's welcome up our pastor and visionary leader as he speaks from the prophet. All David. right, thank you. All right. Awesome. Love you, my brother. Good to see you with that big Bible. Awesome. Let's open up our Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Good to be in the house of the Lord after the break. Did you guys have a good break? Have fun hanging out, get some rest. It's kind of weird like when you get into that break schedule and come back. I don't know if anybody else feels that, but it feels a little weird for me. It's like, what do I do with all this free time? I'm used to doing stuff on Mondays. What am I supposed to be doing? Okay. And then I also didn't do uh, the preaching on Fridays either with the youth because the school weren't, you know, schools weren't in. So it's like, man, I'm missing my Mondays and my Fridays now. And then King's Kids canceled one night because it was too close to the holiday. It, yeah, it was just too much rest for me. Believe it or not, it was too much. I'm at the age where I like a consistent schedule. For you guys, it probably was very, very helpful because you guys pack in a lot into your, your lives and you need that kind of break. As you get older and you're in charge of your schedule, you know, so a teacher can't mess it up by giving you homework, pick the kind of life where you're busy for Jesus, but you're not overworked and you're not complacent and bored. Find that great balance, be in good health, be in good spirits about yourself, a good attitude in other words, and you'll enjoy the journey. You won't burn out, you'll burn up. And we are so excited about offering that all expense trip paid mission trip for you guys. It was monies that we raised a while back. I was going to go. They changed their dates. I couldn't then go. And then I just felt the Lord say it wasn't for me. So we sent uh, Ellie and his wife earlier on, and then they had some issues. We haven't uh, seen them for a while. And then we said, what to do next? And then I wanted to give it to a couple, the Vivits, and then they started having children and things were changing in their life. And all the Philippines are waiting for us, so what do we do? So then I felt this year is the year we give it to the students. You guys have calls on your life. What a blessing it is to do that. I have never even heard of that. I know churches do fundraisers and things, but I've never heard. If you've heard of one, let me know. We're a church actually paid for the people to go on the, the mission trip. That's the new way we kind of do things around here. That's why we don't do fundraisers. And if people want to come on the mission trip with the people who are going, they can raise their monies as well well. Our contact person, raise their money without fundraising here. You can do it however you want. Go fund me pages and things like that. But my, my real goal is to have our missionaries be supportive for our mission budget. So you don't have to go to other churches and ask for it. We'll just present Carlos here once a year and say, Carlos, what's the budget we need this year? Okay, I need $40,000 to do good work in the Congo. Okay, guys, let's raise $40,000. Let's give him 10K up front and let's raise the monthly budget now. Every month, we gotta give him those shekels so he can, he can survive out there. It's not complicated, is it? I mean, a lot of churches around here could do it that way if they wanted to, right? They, had, they boast about all their money. They boast about all their properties. They boast about all their concerts that they wouldn't it be very hard to support a missionary, would it? I mean, they boast about paying all these people on their staff to do what? What, the sixth ministry, the sixth of the fivefold ministry, which is multimedia? Come on, somebody. Now, I know that's important, but wow, it's something how those guys get paid, and yet we don't have any money for missions. Let's go back to doing what the old timers used to do. Let's put missionaries out before we start paying multimedia, amen? If the worship director can do multimedia and something else, or the youth pastor, that's great. Let's have it. One of the things we'll be raising this year is for about a two or $3,000 camera that's gonna be right square in the center, and it's what the professionals use, and it will give us four or five angles. It can get the angle here of people looking at their Bible, 
cool. It can get me on stage, one camera. It's amazing. They're the real expensive kind. I was just watching Gordon Ramsay's show and when he takes around this truck and does renovations, one of those were planted up there. It almost looks like a security camera. It hangs from the top. It has a ball like that, but they're very expensive and they're very high tech. They're the next level of webcasting. In other words, they capture high definition and, 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 and they don't have to be moved by like a person moving a camera. They're moved digitally. You set your shots and then the guy can literally just sit right there on the iPad and just be touching the shots while he's doing it right like that. And then it'll come in nice and crisp as opposed to the way we're doing it now. And we always kind of show this, you know, the screen this way. So a lot of exciting stuff. And then the Philippines will be working with Pastor Ray and his family. They have an orphanage there, ministries there, multiple churches they've planted there. It will be amazing. So make sure you guys get that in and know it's our honor to bless you guys. Go to Psalm chapter two. Another good news to share with you. This will be the end of me piggybacking off of our Sunday goodies. Starting next week, by God's grace, I'm going to start a exegetical sermon series. I'm thinking about the book of Romans. I want to make sure I go through the calendar and see if I have enough time. I believe there's 16 chapters in the book of Romans, correct? So I'll need at least 16 weeks. That should be enough, right? Yeah. It's going to be there. Just check for me now, if you can, how many weeks we got left. We got to take off from Mardi Gras, and I think you guys get another break. Yeah, can you just count it out to yourself and give it back to me in a minute? Thank you. So that will be something to look forward to verse by verse through the book of Romans, amen? Now, of course, I could come back here next week and start teaching out of Hebrews. You never know, so just be ready. But the bottom line is no more piggybacking. That was cool during the Worldview series and all of that. And then I just thought I would keep it going to the end of the year. What I wanna do now is set us up for the year just like I did for the church and all those listening, even our friends that join us online. I wanna make sure that everybody has a good year set up for them. 2019 is a year of expansion. God wants to bless you. He wants to use you. He wants to expand your territory. And he wants you to do that through the kingdom. So we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all the other things we need are added unto us. Okay, let's go to Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. It says, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Who here is the Lord's anointed? What's his name? Jesus. That's literally what it means. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah is Hebrew. Christ and, and Messiah both mean the same exact thing, the anointed one. Messiah is the English version of Mashiach from Hebrew. Christ is the English version of the Greek, Christos, but it means exactly the same thing. And that's what I was talking about yesterday. We never want to take the name of the Lord in vain, Jesus Christ, and say that flippantly because that is the name of our king. Jesus, our anointed one, Jesus, our king, that is the one we worship and adore. The father says, I'm going to set him up on his throne, despite what all these nations want to do. When they say, I'm going to throw off the, the chains and the shackles, look at what God does. Verse four, the one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. So there's no playing around with God, right? You mess around with God, you're going to get judged. You think you're going to put up an argument against God, he's going to laugh and mock you. The Bible says he mocks the proud mockers. The mockers say, oh, if there was a God, he would do this, this, and this. And he says, I am a God, and I'm going to do this, this, and this. 
So he brings that sass right back to them, the Bible says. They laugh at him now, and they go, oh, there's no God. Oh, I scoff at you. And he says, I'm laughing at you on judgment day when I come on a white horse with my swords dipped in your blood. Listen, let's get it very clear. Jesus on judgment day is not interceding. He is not weeping anymore. He intercedes now for the church. He intercedes now that none would perish. When judgment has come, and it will, be, it will be coming soon, it will be at the right time where no one will have an excuse. The Bible says all the world will have heard the gospel. When he comes, he's now coming as a conquering king. He is not interceding. He is laughing. He is finding joy in defeating his enemies. Have you ever played a third-person shooter or first-person shooter, rather, like Halo and things? Do you have fun when you're winning? Do you have fun when you're on a killing spree? What do you start saying to your competition when you're on a killing spree? What you doing, man? Why are you laying on the floor? Hold this grenade for a second, right? And then you kind of squat down. Back in the day, the Halo guys used to squat down over them. You mock them. You scoff them. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says he mocks them. He scoffs them. And if you say, oh, Joe, you're taking that out of context, read verse five and see if I'm taking it out of context. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Bible says he's coming to do this. In verse six, he says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. David now says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. And what is the Lord's decree? God said, he said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, ye kings, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Put my note right there, excuse me. You rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord, or excuse me, you therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. Why is anybody destroyed? Because it's their choice, isn't it? Your way leads to destruction. What did Jesus say? Wide is the path that leads to destruction. It's wide enough for Oprah to bring all of her many gods on there. It's wide enough for Jeff Bezos to bring his greed in there and his unbelief in God. It's wide enough for Buddha to fit on there and Muhammad to fit on there. That path is a wide path and it's a path of destruction and it is chosen by people individually. But the path, come on, the path of eternal life is narrow. You can only fit Jesus on there. It's Jesus's way. Amen. It's the highway of holiness, as Isaiah says. Kiss the son or he'll become angry and your way will lead to your destruction. His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Today, I want to talk about asking Jesus for the nations. And I want to do that in a specific way for your calling. In verse eight, It says, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possessions. What's going on in Psalm 2? This is before Christ, hundreds of years. David is writing prophetically about what it's going to be like when the Messiah comes. The Messiah is going to be made a king. He's going to set things in order. He's going to judge the wicked. When Jesus came, did he do all of those things? He didn't. So does that mean he wasn't the Messiah? No, it means it's about his second coming. But was he declared to be the son of God? Yes. Let's go to the book of Matthew. 
chapter 3, verse 13. Remember, this is what it says. It says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. He said to me, you are my son. Go to the baptism of Jesus, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 starting, say, in verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. A voice from heaven said, this is my what? My son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Now, is that the day that he was appointed king, the son king, the king, of, the king that was prophesied as the son? In Psalm chapter two, the son is made a king. He's proclaimed the son here at the baptism, but is this the day that the son becomes the king? No. Let's go to the book of Acts and see when did Jesus, according to the timeline of the Bible, receive his kingship as son? So we see he's declared son in the baptism. But when, as son, does he get made king? Do you understand the question? It's confusing for me to even ask it. I'm trying to ask it in a way where I don't give it away, but it's kind of complicated. What we have to understand is the process that the Messiah is going to go through. He never becomes the son of God. He always was the son of God. Jesus was the son forever in eternity. But when he took on flesh, now it's proclaimed to humanity who the eternal son of God is among us. The father says, this is my son. Did that mean at baptism, Jesus became the son? No, he was the son from the beginning. John is very clear about that. He's always been the son. But why is it being proclaimed now? What changed about Jesus? He took on flesh. And so to be technical, Jesus is the incarnation of the son in the flesh. That's why it says you shall call him Jesus. Up until that point in all of eternity past, before the incarnation, he was just known as as the son. When I was talking to my children, they say, well, if the son's name is Jesus, what's the father's name? See, the father was never given a different name. The father is known by the title father. The Holy Spirit doesn't have a name. He has attributes, counselor, and all those things, but he is known by his title, Holy Spirit. Why does the son have a name now Jesus? The son now has a name, Jesus, because he's the only one who came into the flesh. So Jesus is the name of the son in the flesh. Does everybody get that? Jesus, to be technical, did not exist until the incarnation when God became man. And to be technical, the son always existed before he took on flesh and was identified as Jesus. The person never changed though. The person of Jesus is the same yesterday, forever, yesterday, today, and forever. But as he related to us, he never related to us as the God-man Jesus. That is a special way the son came to relate to us. And that's why he has the name Jesus along with his title, the son. 
So why does the father now call him my son while he's there? Wasn't he always his son? He calls him his son at baptism because he wants to let everybody know. Just think John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So the son was sent to be Jesus in the flesh. When he becomes Jesus in the flesh, he's still the same person called the son, but now he has a human nature. As a human, he has veiled his glory according to Philippians 2, so the father wants everybody to know who he is. He is still his son. So when does the flesh body of Jesus get glorified to the son's divine nature to become the eternal God man so that Jesus can no longer bleed? You, could not crucif- you can't crucify him again, just like you won't be able to in your resurrected state. When does he become that eternal king, the God man? That's where we go to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 32 says, we tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Do you see that? The son in the flesh is raised from the dead. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Now do you understand how they interpreted this verse? They knew the son had been sent to them. They knew that he had pre-existed. They knew that. They knew John 3.16. They knew that he had always existed. They knew at the baptism that he was the son. They knew that. But it wasn't until his union with flesh was glorified after he was dead and buried and raised that then he was the Masonic, uh, not the Masonic, the Messianic rather, not the Masonic Lodge, and that's it, the Messianic King. When he was raised, he became the Messianic King. Let me show you again. Go to Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to show you another prophecy. You guys got to understand this. Otherwise, cults will twist you up. Do you you get what I'm trying to teach you here? Amen. Go to Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Look at verse 13, Daniel 7, 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. How will Muslims, Jehovah Witnesses, anybody who denies the Son is equal to the Father use this against you? They will say, if Jesus is God, why is he being given authority? Isn't God all-powerful? 
Do you guys understand their objection? They'll say, if he is God, this is the last debate I had with the Muslim. This was like his big point. He thought this was an amazing thing. He thought he had me cornered. You believe God's all powerful? Yes, so God can't get any more power. That's right. You believe Jesus was God? Yes, that means he had all power. Yes. Why does it say here he's given authority? What would you say? I was debating him live. What are you going to say now? Everybody's listening to your answer. <sighs> so you don't understand the incarnation. How many times, what's that? No, 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 no. I'm telling you what I said to him. Sorry, that was a rhetorical. I said to him, you don't understand the incarnation. Sorry, that's what I meant to him. I said, you don't understand the incarnation. We believe he's always had power and authority. Go back to the scripture, Daniel. What does it say? Son of man. Son of man. Who is called son of man in the Bible? God or men? Men. Son of man is a popular name for the prophets, like in Ezekiel. Son of man. Prophesy such and such. What is happening here? A man. A man is given all of this authority. But now watch. This man is now worshiped. Who is this man that is now worthy of worship? Look at the next verse in 15 of Daniel. It says, I, Daniel, was troubled in my spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Why do you think Daniel is disturbed? Because he sees a man come to the ancient of days who he knows is the father and is given every single thing the father has, power, authority, dominion, and is now worshiped as the father is worshiped. How is that possible? That is only possible through the incarnation of the Son taking on flesh and then at his resurrection being glorified as the God-man on behalf of what man lost, being given all that God has. He is the perfect example of God and man being unified. Now in him, God and men are unified as mankind. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians, in him, in him, in him, in him, in Christ, we now share in divinity. P Peter said, you partake of divinity. Well, who was the first one to partake of divinity? Jesus is flesh with the divine son of God. Now, some people try to teach, and it's an ancient heresy, that Jesus was a normal man, and then the son came into him and said, hey, I'm God, and I'm living inside of you now, and I'm going to make you God, and then we'll join together and become one being. That is not at all what happened. The best way to understand the incarnation is that Jesus, as the eternal son in time past, took on flesh to be born of a virgin and had one consciousness, one mind. In other words, his soul was divinity. And in the flesh, he merged them together in what we call the hypostatic union. The hypostasis in the Greek means the union of their natures. And he lived as a man. Philippians says he didn't stop being God. He just limited God powers. So he's still the son, but he's living as a man. And then when he lives sinlessly and he dies, he now gets what no man has ever gotten. He gets elevated. His flesh gets elevated to divinity. So it's not that God became a man and then left humanity behind and then goes back to being God. God became a man so that man might become God. And it's not like man becoming God, like gurus teaching you that you have a God within. Man becoming God is one person, Jesus, in the union with the eternal son. He becomes God. He becomes God in the flesh. And now humanity is joined to divinity. 
Now, all of us do not get that. Just because Jesus moves on the inside of us and we get resurrected body doesn't mean we become God and it doesn't mean that now we become worshiped. That's what Mormons believe. That is not true. We believe we are still humanity, but humanity in its fullest sense is in the image of the divine son of God. The fullest sense is to be like Jesus, but not to take away his uniqueness. So wherever that line is drawn from being a partaker in the divine nature, but not being in the divine nature is where humanity will be. That is the highest we can be. Is everybody tracking with me? And Acts is very clear when that happens. That happens at the resurrection. Now, how do we know? Let's go to Matthew chapter 28. Look at your neighbor and say, this is just the introduction. This is just me explaining the passage before I apply it to your life, amen? I I wanna make Psalm 2 make sense to you so that you can understand why they're quoting from it, why they're using it, and why it's a part of the big picture of Jesus's life. So go to Matthew chapter 28, one of our popular scriptures here. Now, what does it say in Daniel when the Son of Man receives authority? What are people gonna do for him? What are they gonna give to him? They're gonna give him what? Worship, let's just see if that happens. This is after the resurrection, right? Verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they what? They worshiped him. So Daniel 7 has now been fulfilled. During the, res- during the burial time, between the burial and resurrection, Jesus, the Bible says in, in Ephesians, descends and he ascends. He descends and he takes care of judgment, and then he ascends and he brings with him those in Abraham's bosom to the presence of God. When he does that and he brings paradise with him to the presence of God, he presents his blood, and that point, Jesus, the God-man, God in the flesh, is given in every single thing Daniel says he's going to have, thus fulfilling Psalm chapter two. I have said, you're my son and, I, and you have become, I, I've become your father and I've made you a king. Because watch what it says in Matthew. They worshiped him, some doubted. Are you a doubter or are you a worshiper? worshiper. Amen, now look at verse 18. He has it now, watch it. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he has it given to him now. Once again, to walk it through, did the son already have it? Yes, but in the flesh as Jesus, did the man Christ Jesus as God unified with man have it? No. And that's why the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and men. What? The man Christ Jesus. So there's nothing wrong with calling Jesus the man. Some people say, oh, the man upstairs. That's not necessarily appropriate to use it that way. But if you say Jesus is the man, that is true. It is the man Christ Jesus. Not two natures, but remember, it was the glorification of Jesus in union with the son that made this son king. So to go back to my original question, when did the son become king? At his baptism or at his resurrection? at his resurrection, right? And technically in between in the burial. But as he comes forth, as the Psalm, uh, as, as the, the uh, Acts teaches us, as he comes forth, he has the authority. He is now the son king. Did he already have kingship in times past before he was incarnated? Absolutely. Go to Micah chapter five. Go to Micah chapter five. You like when we get deep? Amen. This is, uh, this is good stuff here. This is how you learn to work your word. Understanding prophecies. When I read this to you, you'll sound familiar because it's a Christmas passage. 
but it's very important that you understand why they're quoting passages like this. If you look to Matthew, this passage is found, Micah 5, 2. It says, but you, Bethlehem Eparoth, or Bethlehem Judea, as it says in Matthew, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Okay, does everybody know that's from Matthew? Can I just show it to you real quick? Let me just show you. Go to Matthew chapter two, just so you understand why they're quoting this. I just like to see it. Go to Matthew chapter two, verse six. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, do you see it? It says, you by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Same passage, right? That's Micah five. But understand why they're quoting it. Just like understand why they quote Psalm two a couple times in the book of Acts. Why are they quoting this? Because the son that is king is also their God. Because the son is equal to the father. He's equal to him. Because there's only one king of kings. There can't be two king of kings. And Jesus is the king of kings. So there's no king greater than him. So he must be equal to God. How do we know that? When you look at Micah chapter five, this ruler, look at the description of the ruler. One will be ruler, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from what? ancient times. That terminology from ancient times, his origin is from ancient times, is only used of God in the Bible. Go to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, that is only used of God himself. This cannot apply to a mere creature, someone that has been created and has a beginning. When you go to Isaiah chapter 43, God tells us that he is the king. And there are no kings beside him. There's no saviors beside him. There's no God beside him. And then he tells you that his time is of ancient origins. Thank you. Isaiah 43, 13. Yes, and from ancient days, I am he. Go back to verse 12 to get it in context. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days, I am he. So who is the one being born of the virgin? One that is God of ancient times. There is no one that is of uh, there's no one that can be created and be called of ancient times. The Bible, as we read in Daniel, says he is the ancient days, and Jesus is called of ancient times. So they share the same attributes. But once again, does that mean the Father and the Son are the same person? No. They share the same attribute of being eternal without a beginning. So the one born, that's why it says in Isaiah, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The child is born. The incarnation is the son coming into the child's flesh. That's the incarnation. So to us a child is born, but the son is given. Do you guys get that in Isaiah 9? Okay, so the son is not born. The child is born. The son is from ancient times, like his father. And the same thing with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is from eternity. That's why it's called, uh, in the New Testament, it's called, he, the Holy Spirit, is called the eternal spirit, the eternal, everlasting spirit. Now let's go back to Psalm 2. You guys ready for the lesson now? Everybody understand the passage. The passage says that the nations are conspiring against our God. The rulers want to cast down his kingdom. But God says, my answer to this is to install a king. My answer to this is to make my son king. 
John 3, 16, God sends his son. At the baptism, he says, hey, this is my son. At the mountain of transfiguration, he says, this is my son. At the resurrection, he's like, this is my son, and he's your king. There it is. Does everybody see that? Just a few things that I want to point out before we move on to the application. That the Bible says the wicked will be dashed to pieces like pottery, and God threatens them that if they do not worship him, that he will destroy them. Kiss the sun or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So before we look at verse eight in the nations and all of those things, asking for the nations on behalf of Jesus in his name, that's literally what it means to pray in Jesus's name on his behalf. All prayers should always be for the behalf of Jesus and his kingdom. Doesn't that make sense of why he could say, anything you ask in my name will be done because anything according to his plan in his kingdom, it's always going to be done, amen? So he wants us to pray the prayers he wants to accomplish on this earth. We're partnering with him. That's the plan he's chosen. Before we get into that, I want you just to think for a moment, how does this kind of preaching uh, affect or impact people in our culture when we preach this way? Imagine just saying to your neighbor, you've preached to them, you share with them the gospel, and then you said, well, you better kiss the son and worship him lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. How are they gonna respond to that? They're gonna take that as a threat, aren't they? And they should because it is. God is threatening them. Why is it we think that threats and ultimatums and things like that are unkind. What is our definition of kind? If, if we're trying to create kindianity or niceanity, shouldn't it be Christianity first? Because isn't God more loving than we'll ever be? So shouldn't our definition of what is kind and loving line up with what the Bible says is kind and loving? If God is telling them, kiss me and worship me or I'll be angry and destroy you, is that being mean to them in an ultimatum? No, because ultimatums can be good and kind and loving if what they're trying to spare you from is that severe. And so therefore you need to know the ultimatum. Don't cross the street or, uh, you know, look both ways before you cross the street or what? You get hit by a car. Isn't that the most loving thing a parent can teach their children? I'm teaching my children that right now. They are not ready to do that by themselves yet, but I'm teaching them. The ultimatum is very clear. How many know a doctor, if a good doctor is there, gives a good ultimatum? Good ultimatum. What's a good ultimatum? Either you take this medicine or you die or you'll remain sick or yeah, you, you know, you're not going to get better. So let's just stop trying to make blatant statements as our rule of ethics that make God look mean, okay? So if you're gonna draw a list of what makes somebody nice and mean, and Jesus, the Bible, the apostles keep going on the mean side, how many know you're drawing the wrong line of ethics? So ethics need to be drawn according to the scripture, as we talked about before in presuppositional apologetics. We need to presuppose our foundation is true so that we can operate in it. Otherwise, we're gonna be running and chasing our tail. If this Bible is not true and is not the standard of ethics, then what is the standard of ethics that this Bible must submit to? Do you see how that turns into antichrist really quick? Is the American culture the standard of ethics that now this Bible answers to? And the American style of ethics can now point at the Bible and go, you bad Bible, you meanie Bible, let me teach you how to be nicer. No, we're supposed to stand and correct the other. The Bible stands over the culture and corrects the culture. 
I just want to give you a few more examples of this because I really want this to be in your heart today. When I say to you, when I say this to you, if you do not repent of your sins, you will perish. Is that me being mean? No. So let's just take an example. If I go to say Ellen, and I always love using this example. She's so nice, you know. Even I enjoy watching her show at times, right? It's just like it captivates you. She's a nice person. She's fun to watch. Okay. So I say to Ellen, Ellen, either you accept Christ, repent of your sins, and now come forth into the righteous things of God. Because the Bible says, bring forth fruit, fruit, meet for repentance. Repent and then bring the fruit forth. Say you're sorry for being in a relationship with Portia and then now live holy, right? When I do that, am I being mean? If I tell her, if you don't repent and separate from Portia and follow Christ now, either celibate or marry someone of the opposite sex, you're going to perish in hell. If I don't tell her that, I'm actually mean, aren't I? Do you see now the confusion of our culture? They're calling evil good. They're pointing to to Ellen going, that's good. Don't tell her who she can and cannot love. That's good. You telling her that's sin is evil. You're the evil one. That's, That's how they're twisting it. Now let's just put it towards any sin. Let's just put it towards the sin of greed. Somebody goes, uh, I don't think I need to tithe. You know, I don't really believe that, you know, it's, it's, it's for today and I'm gonna give whatever I wanna give. And we say to them, no, the Bible says it in the Old Testament, confirms it in the New Testament. It's part of the moral law. That's what I personally believe. And then they go, you know what? I don't even wanna do that. If I tell them, you either become a faithful giver to God in this way that he prescribed, or you're greedy and you're gonna suffer the penalty. Am I being mean to him? No, not if tithing is a command. Not if tithing is a command, right? Not if it's a command. If someone is sleeping with their girlfriend and I say, listen, you have to repent for what you are doing with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and they say, I don't want to. Am I mean to say, you better do it or you're going to perish? No, it's actually loving. I don't know about you, but I get so much of that pushback in my culture and and we're in the same culture, obviously, but from the people I preach to, that when I read something like this, it really sets me free. It really does. I don't know if it does that for you, but it really sets me free because sometimes I don't read passages like this. Like maybe I'm reading passages right now in Ecclesiastes or I'm going through other passages of the Bible and there'll be these things in my head about what people said about me. And it's like, I know it's not right and I'm not paying attention to it, but I just don't have the scripture like right off the top of my head. It's just not there yet. I'm not rebuking that thought in that way. And it kind of lingers. And then I'll find myself reading a passage like this and I'll go, dude, this sounds exactly like what I was trying to say. Therefore, you right college students, be wise, be warned. You rulers of Chicago, you better serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Worship and kiss him. That's what it means to kiss, to worship. Or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. All of a sudden, I'm reminded of the Holy Spirit again. I don't know if, if sometimes you forget, but I'm being honest with you. I can forget sometimes because you don't want to be intentionally mean. We don't want to be intentionally rude. We don't want to always come across to people like we're trying to hurt them. 
And yet that's the way they keep receiving us. But I can't change my message to fit their sin. I can't change the king, in other words, to fit their sin. The king changes them to fit his kingdom. Isn't that true? And so I just want you to be encouraged before we get into our last few minutes here of application is that the whole Psalm 2 here is about a king doing his work. You can't get out of it. You can't cast off his chains and say, well, I'm not gonna keep your commands. I'm gonna do whatever I want. And then it work out for you. He's literally telling you, literally like right there, he's telling you, I will destroy you. And I love how it ends. And then it says, but blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So is it really that complicated for an Ellen today? No, because it's no, she doesn't need to do anything different. It doesn't matter if it's homosexual sin or anger sin or greed sin. She doesn't need to do anything different than what I did, what you did, and what Christians throughout the ages have done. Right, Jackie? All she needs to do is come to the refuge of God. And what would that look like in her life? Just imagine, come on guys, let's use our Holy Ghost imagination and then we'll pray for her, right? What would it look like? Just picture it with me right now. Think of her face, think of her as a person. What would it look like? Her on her knees at an altar like this, tears streaming down her face and her saying, Jesus, I just love you so much. I'll give up anything for you. And then as she's weeping at God's feet, she's saying to the Lord, I am sorry for breaking your commands. Change my heart, oh God, and make it like yours. Can you guys imagine that? Can you see that in your mind's eye? What is happening as she is standing up then? She is standing up and getting the opportunity to live the greatest life she has ever known. When she gets up off of her knees, she is not going to wish she was still with Portia. No more than you would wish you were having a beach day at a Chicago pothole compared to the lake or the ocean. Does anybody at the ocean wish to go have a swim day at a pothole in Chicago? You know, you just, you know the difference now. You have tasted and seen. You have seen the beauty of it. And it's the same for every one of us, man. Nobody is getting treated different on judgment day. That's the whole point of judgment day. It's perfectly just. And God will show us the filth we traded for his glory. God will show us the shadows we traded for the reality. What was she in in that relationship? A shadow of love, a shadow of companionship. But what was the actual thing? God himself. What was the thing that would satisfy and go deep and so deep in her soul that a person's hand could never touch? God the God of love. And what is holiness? You read through the holy code uh, of Le Leviticus and so forth. It is not a bunch of chains like the world says they are. and We're gonna break off from them. No, the holiness code was based on the presence of God so he wouldn't kill them. Because remember, the king's not gonna change for the sinner. The sinner's gonna change to be with the king. But how does he change them? By his love, by his grace. Jesus didn't change. That's why he came into perfect body. He didn't come and be a sinner. 
Did Jesus come in sin to be with us, to be like us? No, he came in perfection to show us what us, what we were supposed to be as us. He showed us what humanity was supposed to be. You're supposed to be like Jesus. That's why the Bible says, as he is in 1 John, so are we now in this world. That's why it says in Romans, he's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He lifts us up with him. The Bible literally says that we'll be exalted with him on that day, seated with him. Isn't that what he says? Seated with him in heavenly places. We get to sit on his lap. We get to enjoy all of his inheritance. That's why we're more than conquerors. We never conquered anything. We were only conquered. We were the one knocked out, laying face down on the mat, tongue sticking out and drool there. And God's the one that comes and beats up the devil. And then as we're there standing at the end, he puts the trophy in our hand with his and raises it up together and goes, you won. You get what I get now. You're all busted up. Yeah. No, he also transforms you and makes you smile. I mean, it's always funny, like when Rocky would win a fight, he was so much, oh, Adrian, you know. But no, we stand up in victory. We stand up in, in likeness to him. Amen? Well, let's just make this application brief then. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the end of the earth your possession. Somewhere in that burial resurrection state, when he's there in the presence of the Father, he makes that request. The Father says yes, he grants it to him. He then comes through the tomb and then meets with his disciples and he says, guys, I got it. Everything Adam and Eve lost, I got back right now. It's right here, here are the keys of the kingdom. I didn't have to worship the devil to get it, but I had to lay down my life for it. Now you go into those nations and you baptize them in the name of the, make disciples and then baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you and then I will be with you to the end of the age. So what is this age right now? This is the church age, the, the age of bringing forth the dominion of God to the earth, to bringing forth his, his kingdom through our works right now. And the Bible describes what it will be like. We'll be like lambs led to the slaughter and, and that's gonna be hard because we're gonna suffer persecution, but it also says it will be beautiful. The Bible says we'll be like the light of the earth. The earth will be so dark, but we'll be shining bright. We'll be like the salt of the earth. The world will be so bland and tasteless and useless, but we'll be flavoring the earth. The Bible then says we'll be like a city on a hill. We'll be like those that the world can see and look to and find safety. That's who we'll be as disciples. Amen. And so now we have to go through the vision of our church and apply it to you as SUM students. So our vision is loving God and loving people, the two greatest commandments. So I wanna challenge you this year to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. It will never get more basic than that. You have an issue with sin, it's an issue really with your love relationship with God. You have an issue with people, you're bitter, you're unforgiving, you have a, relation, you have a problem with loving them as, as Christ loves you. If he's forgiven you, you can forgive them. So we love God, we love people. And then in our church, we teach connect, mentor, send. Connecting to the cross, being mentored with the cross, sending out with the cross. If you have already been uh, ordained as an elder or a deacon, then that means you're able right now to start mentoring and doing that with others. If you're still in that process, you yourself are being poured into. But no matter what, for the rest of your life, that's what you're going to do. 
You will be always poured into and always pouring out. That's it. I'm still getting poured into by my mentors and leaders and I am still pouring out. That's the way it's gonna be. We're disciples making disciples. And when we are sent out, we're sent out just like he sent them out in Mark chapter 16. He said, I'm sending you out to go preach. Matter of fact, let's go look at it, Mark 16. He said he's gonna send them out into the world to preach the gospel. And we come in Pentecostal power. We come with signs and wonders. Uh, not because we've done anything special. You know, we pray, we may fast, we may study and do all of that, but it's not that we've earned those spiritual gifts. These are gifts given to us. They're a gift, hence the name. It says in verse 12 of Mark 16, afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them. See how quickly he could shape shift and change his form? Because the flesh was just the earth suit that he was in. He did that to mess with them. God's kind of funny like that, isn't he? he? I don't know who he looked like, but he definitely didn't look like Jesus. So he shape shifts in front of them, or I mean, uh, to go meet with them, and they don't recognize him as the Jesus that they had seen crucified, because they were probably around during that time. And uh, the Bible says that as they were walking, he goes and he says these things to them. Now these returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them. Then Jesus appeared to the 11. As they were eating, he rebuked them for their lack of faith. Hey, you should have believed those guys that I shape-shifted and came to them. And their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So he rebukes them. Now watch this. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And it says, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands and drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them. That's basically being invincible. That doesn't mean go out and grab a snake and do it now. It just means God will keep you until it's your time. They will place their hands on the sick people and they will get well. After the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. This is what it's like when Jesus sends us out. He sends us out in power. He sends us out in authority, amen? And then our goal here is to plant 100, uh, rather to make 100,000 disciples, plant 50 churches here, 500 around the world. I'm gonna do everything I can this year to make that happen. I wanna ask you guys to do the same, amen? Because if we don't, then who else is gonna do it? You know? Like, let's just say, like the greatest uh, opportunity came to you to go and do this somewhere else. And so you leave Metro Praise and you go somewhere else to do it. Aren't you then gonna to have to do exactly what I'm doing right now? Making disciples that make disciples to teach a vision and then you're gonna be saying to them, now will you help us do it? At some point, we all have gotta start working together to get it done. And that's why I believe God calls people to work with churches. You could have easily have been Brother Anthony to me. If God wanted it to be such, you could have been Brother Anthony and I would have been in your Bible college. But today, I'm the one that God appointed to be your elder. It doesn't mean I'm better or you're worse. It doesn't mean any of that. Do you guys get my point in that? God determines who we are, where we are, where we're born. If God wanted you to lead Metro Praise, then I would be in your church doing Metro Praise. I went to Ashton Bible College. They started it. I went to it. Does everybody get it? If, and I know this is kind of basic, but it's good to remind everybody because sometimes, you know, these people do these entrepreneurial things and they'll say like, everybody needs to be an entrepreneur. If everybody's an entrepreneur, then who's working for the entrepreneurs? Like if everybody's a Steve Jobs, then who makes the product? I can't make that product. I'm an entrepreneur. I can't make that product. I'm an entrepreneur. I can't, okay. Well, then who actually builds the homes then? Who actually does? There has to be times where we start things and then there has to be times that we implement the things that are started. 
That's why in this ministry, I've never desired like a lifetime membership to the presidency or a lifetime this or whatever. I want us to become like a movement where the Assemblies of God has different leaders, you know, and they vote them in by the consensus of the, you know, of the people. And that, that, that can be an idea as we move forward. But for right now, I'm just doing what I, what I feel God calling me to do. And I'm asking you to do that same thing. Like, what has God put in your heart to do? What has he said? Like, what's important for you? If it's the worship ministry, how are you this year going to seek God's kingdom for the nations in that worship ministry? How is Jesus going to be king there, in other words? How are you going to make disciples through that? And every one of your life groups, how are you going to do that? And, and it's always going to be basic. I get it. Like, I'm going to pray. I'm going to preach. I'm going to, you know, go out and touch the world. I get it. But, but every year, every season, there needs to be like specific things. Like, what does that look like? We want to have at least 100 youth this year. So where are they? We have about 50 to 60. So where's the other 40 to 50? Okay, how are we going to get them? How are we going to preach to them? Who's going to lead them in discipleship? Who's going to lead them in life groups? Same thing with the worship band. We want to put out an album. What does that look like? How do we start? Where do we go? Where do we go? What song do we release first? Preaching and teaching. All of us want to be church planners, at least a lot of us, or you want to be with a church planner. You know, it's like either, Joe, I'm called to plant the church and lead it, or I want to be one of the team that does. Like all of us here have that spirit in us, amen? Okay, so how do we do that? Do we just send you guys out now and just say, go try your best? Do we wait till we have 300, keep 200, send you out with 100? Sounds better right? Like overseas. All of us want to do overseas work, some longer than others. How many want to do stuff overseas? At least, you know, a few times in your life, right? Others want to go live over there. How do we do that? Do we start you with short term? Do we then do it longer and then just give you a one-way ticket one day and then say, now you're there. You stay there now. I don't know how we do it, but it can be done. It can be done if you pray and you seek God and there's not just one person coming up with the ideas, and there's not just uh, you know one staff that comes up with the ideas. All of us come up with ideas. I remember Gray Crochelle telling the story about how he came up with the Bible app. He says at that time, this is Life Church. He said at that time they were putting all these uh, all this money into developing virtual churches in these worlds, like uh, My Second Life, and places like that. I don't know if anybody remembers any of those virtual worlds. There was a place called My Second Life, and he said I wanted to always be on the cutting edge. So you know we were building actual churches in there where people would meet, and then there would be chat rooms and all of that, and it just wasn't working. Like a lot of people just weren't switching to it. You know. It wasn't catching on. It wasn't, you know, social media ended up blowing up around that time. So people didn't want to go through that, that virtual world to do it. Just be on Facebook, in other words. But he said there was a young college student, I think it was even an intern, that said, everything's going to apps right now. And if we put the Bible on an app, we can use that as our platform to get across all the other things that we want people to have throughout their day. Devotionals, inspiration, etc. He said that was the greatest idea and it wasn't even from somebody on our staff. Do you get it? Like, you may have the greatest idea right now. You may be having it. You may have that in your spirit, man. And I'm not saying like, you know, like be the golden goose, lay us that golden egg right now or I'm not gonna love you. No, because I don't always have those great ideas. I'm not gonna treat you any different. I just wanna say wisdom and, and knowledge and all of those things are flowing through you guys too. You guys hold a lot of those keys to the kingdom. And so this year, as we go through 2019, let's all figure out what we are supposed to do to bring the kingdom of God here. Because I can tell you as someone who already has a degree, 
already has a job, already gets paid to do this, that will never satisfy. So if you're just thinking to yourself, well, I just want to graduate, and then I want to get married, and I want to be like Pastor Nancy, or I want to be like Pastor Joe, or these other pastors I see, and then I'll be happy in ministry. No, it doesn't work like that. Why do you think billionaires like Mark Cuban keep going onto shows like The Shark Tank and investing in businesses? Don't you think most people after they got a billion would be like, I'm done working? You know why? It's because that's boring. They can't do that. I know I got to end here. They can't do that. They have to have dominion. You were made to have dominion. So just having a job is not enough for you to serve your king. You won't feel satisfied and you'll find yourself doing what David did when he stayed home from battle, falling into sin. Stay on fire, stay passionate. Let's go hard this year, amen? Father, we thank you today for this awesome chapel. We pray that uh, we will partner with you for the nations, that we'll ask you for them in your name as you ask the Father for them in intercession that we bring before you a place like Chicago where there's so many nations represented here that Lord, you'll use us to make disciples that make disciples and you'll send us across this earth to build your kingdom in the hundred and thousand different varieties in which it will look. You will use us as one body, some the hand, some the ear, some the eye, working together to build the body of Christ for your glory till you come back and say to each one of us, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear from you, our King. In Jesus' name, in your name we pray. And everybody said,